Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here with you at Maple Grove Covenant Church. I can already tell that this is a community of faith because Katie told you I have a great message, and that is a uh, faith statement right there. She hasn't heard my sermon yet. (laughs) But um, Maple Grove Covenant is a church I've already been blessed by. Um, Your pastor Craig and Brian, actually, but the past two years, you guys have been part of the men's retreat at Covenant Pines, whether it's uh, leading worship two years ago or this last year, Craig was our speaker. So it's good to be uh, here and able to um, bless you all. And this is my wonderful family, uh, my wife Megan and our son Henry, who's going on three and trying to prove it. And uh, he was sick most of the early part of this week, and he brought all of his energy with this morning and uh, is trying to find a direction for it. But um, Megan is also, we're expecting our, our second child this March, a baby sister for Henry. Buddy, you need to go back down by mommy, yeah. Um, but we live in South Minneapolis, and um, we're, we're proud to call Minnesota home. <laughs> Why don't you give me a hug and, and uh, you go visit the nursery, maybe? That sounds like a great idea. Say, say good morning. Okay, now it's time to go. <laughs> we are uh, really proud to call Minnesota home. And Megan grew up here in Minnesota in Burnsville. Um, I didn't. I grew up actually in Chicago and then moved to Minnesota later in life. But Minnesota always felt like home anyway. Um, I, I grew up cheering for the Vikings instead of the Bears. I was never a Bears fan. Um, it's an exciting day for the Vikings today. I was a Twins fan and a Cubs fan, which I feel like is fine because they, you know, different leagues and they're, they sometimes have similar um, records. And uh, some of my most fond memories are of um, spending my summers in Minnesota. Uh, my grandparents, both, both sides of my family, have Minnesota roots. And so in the summers, we'd often travel up from Chicago and spend time, uh, a lot of it, fishing. And I have really fond memories of fishing with my grandpa on Lake Minnetonka or Minnewashta, or later when they lived on Lake Francis out near Annandale. And uh, I remember especially there was one day uh, we, were, we were visiting Grandma and Grandpa up at the lake, and it was one of those days where it was raining lightly. It was pretty gross to be outside for anything except for fishing or something else where you're going to get a little messy. And uh, we found this spot on the lake where the fish were just biting, and we, we'd pass by, and we'd reel in a good-sized crappie. Um, and so Grandpa threw out the marker buoy, and we just kind of circled around that area, and in a really short time caught like 17 really good-sized keeper crappies. Um, there's some other memorable fishing moments on that lake. Um, one where I reeled in a dogfish off the dock, and uh, I'd never seen a dogfish. I thought it was something prehistoric that I had pulled out of the water. I was quite afraid of it. I just pulled it up on the shore and ran to go get Grandpa and say, what do I do with this thing? Um, and now uh, my in-laws have a cabin on Mille Lacs, and I remember recently out in the bay, there was this giant muskie that just kept circling our boat and surfacing and slinking under the water. And as long as there are fish in Minnesota, we will have our fish stories, right? The text this morning from Luke uh, is a fish story. It's about the miraculous catch, and I don't mean Stefan Diggs, although that was <laughs> quite the game last Sunday, but this, this is a different kind of miraculous catch. You can find it in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, if you'd like to follow along. Uh, but Luke 5 reads, One day... As Jesus was standing by the Sea of Galilee, 
the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and he asked him to put out a little bit from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. This passage came up in my devotional reading recently, and it's a familiar passage to me. It's one that uh, evokes uh, scenes from Sunday school and learning songs about being fishers of men. It's a Bible story that's always made a fair amount of sense to me. Uh, Jesus does a miraculous thing, his audience is amazed, and then these fishermen begin to follow him in response. The Gospels are full of these types of miracle stories. We have um, all four Gospels just full of these amazing acts of Jesus. And John shares one in his Gospel from about the same point in Jesus' ministry. It's just after he's called his 12 disciples in John 2. And we read that Jesus and his disciples were invited to this wedding feast in Cana. And then tragedy strikes. The wine is gone. So Jesus' mother quickly volunteers Jesus to the task, and Jesus points to these six stone jars, about 30 gallons each, and he tells the catering crew, fill those jars with water, and they do. And then Jesus says, draw some out, take it to the master of the banquet, and they do. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then the master of the banquet called the bridegroom aside and said, hey, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheap wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you saved the best till now. At the end of that story, John tells us that what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs. He uses this word signs instead of miracles. A miracle is amazing in itself. A sign points to something that's even greater than just that miraculous event. Sometimes our own signs, or usually our everyday signs, do a similar thing. They, they point to something more important than the sign itself. Sometimes our signs point out where to find more information, like information this way, or a church sign that says, come here, our preacher on Sunday morning, or this way to the bathroom. And sometimes signs direct us toward help, exit or evacuation route or first aid, do not feed the bears, or this way to the bathroom. And signs are intended to be followed. They, they often help us to find the safest or the healthiest path. 
They want to lead us somewhere that's good. So John tells us that Jesus gave his first sign at the wedding of Cana. There was more to it than just this miracle of turning water into wine. But most of us, if we were retelling the events, if we were guests at that wedding at Cana, we'd probably focus on the amazingness of this event, right? We'd say, all right, I was at this wedding, and then we ran out of wine, and then Jesus asked for a bunch of water, and then it became wine. It was amazing. But John pulls out some unique and kind of strange on the surface details. When Mary comes to Jesus, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Why does John tell us that? Later on in John, he says that again, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. But then all of a sudden, when he's on the way to the cross, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. These signs are revealing little glimpses of glory leading up to the cross and the resurrection where all of God's glory is about to be revealed. John also tells us that these six stone jars that were about 30 gallons each were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Now, why that detail? Why do we need to know that they were used for ceremonial washing? Well, it's important that here are some objects of the law, these, these jars that would have been used to follow the Torah. And Jesus takes those, those objects from the Old Covenant and he does something new with them. There's a new covenant. There's a new uh, sign, and he's using wine. I don't think that's a small detail, because later on, Jesus sits at the table with his disciples, and he makes a new covenant with wine, the new covenant of his blood. And each of those jars held 20 to 30 gallons. So think about 120 to 150 gallons of wine, and good wine. That's a spectacular wedding gift for this groom and his family who have just run out. I mean, that's mazel tov right there. Jesus gives a whole bunch of good wine, and where there was scarcity, where they had run out, Jesus brings abundance. So John points these things out to us. And if we stop right there at the amazing event itself, right there Jesus would be a guy worth hanging around, right? I mean, imagine if you were a vineyard owner who was at that wedding, and you're like, man, how do I get Jesus on my payroll? Sure, our water bill will go up, but I can just see the revenue right now. And I imagine that uh, back on the Sea of Galilee, there was at least one fisherman who was nearby Peter's boat, and he saw the load of fish they were pulling in. He's like, man, how do I get that guy on my, my team? And meanwhile, there's another guy uh, who's pulling up his nets, and like, yep, I'm going to try that guy's spot next, definitely. I'm going to move my boat over there. And this happens to Jesus all the time in the Gospels. People get caught looking at the sign and not to what the sign is pointing to. And especially with food, it seems to happen. Whenever there's food involved, whether it's fish or wine or bread, Jesus tends to get lots of followers. And I think uh, comedian Jim Gaffigan really kind of captures this well. So I want to share this this short clip with with you of Jim explaining uh, Jesus and his food miracles. Let's watch this together. I'm, I've really come a, become aware that, like, for instance, Jesus was in amazing shape. <laughs> like, amazing, which is especially impressive, yeah. considering he could multiply bread whenever he wanted. Sure. You know? It's interesting. I've never considered you know. this. This is rare insight. Yeah. Rare perspective on your part. You know, whenever, Jesus. Yeah, had whenever he shape. wanted, he mm-hmm. could just be like, boom, pretzel bread. You know? <laughs> 
I mean, the Bible doesn't really specify Boom. what no, no. type of. But that would be Jesus. Boom. That's Pretzel actually bread. what it's. Dave, that's in the Bible. <laughs> I mean, you should read it. <laughs> Boom. Yeah, pretzel I mean, bread. you know, he's like, boom, pretzel bread, <laughs> boom, garlic knots. You know? That's why he had all those followers. Yeah, you know? Could, boom. Like some of the focaccia bread. Focaccia. Oh, sure. Boom, yes. focaccia. Yes. <laughs> wow. Well, you're a real theologian. <laughs> he's really not that far off, though, right? I mean, if we read John 6, this is what happens. Jesus... Uh, has just multiplied bread and fed thousands of people with it. And then he, he walks across the lake, which is no small detail either. But then he gets to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and it says when the people found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus' response is, Truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the, lo you ate the loaves and had your fill. So in other words, you're not looking for me because you understand who I am. You're looking for me because, boom, garlic knots. You want some more of that bread. So let's not get caught looking only at the sign. This is what makes the fishing story in Luke 5 so interesting to me. Because in verse 11, at the very end of this story, it's a short little phrase, but I think it's just full, where Luke says, they pulled their boats up on shore. They left everything and they followed him. They left everything. These guys made a living out of catching fish, and here they are hauling in the biggest payday they've ever had. Their boats are about to sink, more fish than they could ever hope to catch in one day's work, and they pull all of that up into their boats and into their partner's boats, and they're about to, to sink because they're so heavy with fish, and they paddle that back up to shore, and they pull it up onto the sand, and they leave it. I guess I'd always had in mind that these fishermen were leaving behind uh, a job and a life that they were just glad to be rid of. Like, oh, finally, something else that we get to do. And, you know, by many accounts, it probably would have been that way. But here they are leaving their families and their familiar surroundings and the work that they've known their whole lives right at the height of their success. I mean, think about the fish stories that they could tell. And don't they want to cash one last huge paycheck after they sell all those fish and then go follow Jesus? But instead, they leave it all to follow him. Many of us may have stories about how Jesus rescued us from a destructive season of life. But how many of us have stories of how we heard Jesus call to follow him in the midst of great success. A comfortable season right when life seemed to be at its best. Imagine that at the height of success in your work, whether it's a promotion or the verge of becoming a partner or finishing a major project or finally getting that recognition for all of your hard work and success, at the height of success you just walked away because something was better. In fact, something was best, and you left it all. I teach Bible at Minnehaha Academy, and uh, I'm a pastor in the Covenant Church, and I love the work that I do. But I did have a chance for a very different career. I was a, a public relations student at the journalism school at the University of Minnesota. And uh, when I graduated, I landed a job out of college as a social media manager. 
which sounds way more important than my job actually was. But um, it was right on the kind of the cutting edge of this integration of social media and business. It, Twitter was brand new. Uh, I mentioned it in my interview, and I'm pretty sure that's why I got hired for the job. Like, oh, this guy knows about Twitter. And I wasn't paid much at all. I was really paid like an intern, but there was potential there. I was winning my company awards for their use of social media and the way that we were able to connect with our consumers. But in the midst of that, I heard Jesus calling me a different direction. And so I sat down in the president's office one day and I said, um, Rodney, I'm, I'm leaving to go to seminary in a couple months. And uh, he was a little confused. And he said, well, you could do really well for yourself here. You know, in that moment, he kind of wanted to hook me back in and say, well, there's a potential for a very different uh, outcome for you here. And uh, in the midst of that potential, I still decided, no, that Jesus was calling me this way, to walk away from that. And I want to take a, a pause here for a second to say that following Jesus does not equal going to seminary or getting a church job. In fact, many of the people that I see making big, positive impact for the kingdom of God are doing it outside of uh, the church professional sphere. They're, they're in the marketplace, or they're raising God and neighbor-loving children. The author Dorothy Sayers once wrote that the only Christian work is good work well done. So did Jesus choose Simon and James and John amongst all these other disciples because they were good fishermen? Because they were doing good work well done? Well, Luke tells us that they hadn't caught anything all night, so we can't pin it on that. It doesn't sound like they were the best fishermen. But whatever it was that brought Jesus to them, it was this miraculous catch of fish that changed everything. It's clear that the fishermen-turned-disciples did not set out to follow Jesus because they expected an endless supply of fish or wine or pretzel bread. Peter, at least, was able to see this miracle or this sign and to look beyond it to the truth that it revealed. He fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Peter understood that he was a sinner in the presence of holiness and glory. This miracle pointed to the glory of God and the signs or the miracles reveal something to us about the nature of God. We can see through this that Jesus' ministry was purposeful right from the very beginning when he handpicked this weird bunch of disciples and he prepared them to tell a story of good news. And not just news about these amazing things that Jesus could do, but also why Jesus did them. So through the signs, Jesus gives these glimpses of glory that are like light breaking through little cracks in a dark room. And these miracles tell us, too, that in Jesus there is abundance. The little that was given is transformed into so much. All Peter had to do was put out from shore a little bit and let down the nets. All the servants at the wedding had to do was fill a jar with water. All the little boy with bread and fish had to do was give it to Jesus. And with it, Jesus fed thousands but we have to be honest about what we lack. We have to be able to say, oh, there's no more wine. Or, Jesus, we've been working at this all night, and we haven't caught a thing. 
the fishermen disciples left the temporary abundance of fish to follow the source of that abundance. I mean, imagine if you are thirsty and you have the option of either filling up your cup once or following the stream. So the disciples decide to follow. And, but even Peter and James and John had to be reminded. They got distracted by other signs, by other wonders that Jesus did. And we too need reminders not to get caught up in the razzle-dazzle of God's power. But to hear Jesus calling, follow me. If you fish, or parent, or volunteer, or teach, or manage, or sweep floors, stock shelves, type spreadsheets, run large companies, or build things with your hands, how is Jesus calling you to do all those things in a way that points people to himself? How might the work of your hands be a sign to direct our gaze to God's awesome presence? And may God help us to remind one another when he moves mountains or loads our nets with fish to look beyond the sign and to look to God who is powerful, who evokes our fear and our awe and our God who loves you and loves me. Amen. Let's give it up for Joel. Thank you so much for being here. It is now time for our offering. Uh, I'm going to sing a song as the as the plates are going around. This is a time for this is a time of worship for us to uh, support this community and support what God is doing here. Um, this song is called Vapor. <laughs> 